This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Welcome to Going in Circles. Today's podcast is being recorded on Monday, a few days post-Belmont Stakes in the uh, Derby position in the Triple Crown schedule this year. Uh, the Belmont was actually a a good race, certainly a, a good race for the winner, tis the law, uh, a result that seemingly is... Um, widely accepted as a good thing in the industry is the connections are good guys the owners are good guys the the trainer obviously Barkley Tag and his assistant Robin Smolin are, are known as good hard-working people that uh, don't have a controversy following their name around and the horse really performed well um, Manny Franco did a great job riding him put him in uh, position right out of the gate stalking the speed and move to the turn uh which of course the Belmont is a, a big a big turn but coming out of the turn he sees command of the race and it was never really in doubt he was uh an authoritative winner in a in a fast time over a track that was playing extremely fast for some reason tracks feel like um having fast times on big days is something that they should do. I, I don't exactly understand why. I don't believe the um, the atmospheric conditions excuse because it happens um, far more often than than it should probably. But that has no way, shape, or form does that take anything away from the winner, who was uh, who was very very good and a certainly a deserving winner, and certainly deserving of being called a classic winner. Uh, despite the difference in Belmont distance this year, he um, he came to run, and, and he really did did a lot of running. Very, very, very strong performance, and uh, he'll be tough to beat moving forward if, if things continue to progress with him. Uh, I'm going to have a, a guest on in a few minutes, uh, Pete Denk, who formerly was a writer, I believe, with the Thoroughbred Times, who is a partner in a bloodstock agency now with my friend Kerry Thomas. Uh, Pete is a very, very sharp um, handicapper. He's a very astute observer of the game, and uh, we'll get his insights on the Belmont and some of the undercard races, including the, uh, let's, let's call it hard-to-believe performance in the, uh, the Acorn from a certain trainer and certain horse who's and uh, involved in a little bit of controversy the last uh, 60 days or so, but um, that was a, kind of an eye-opener, and um, it wasn't your typical Belmont Stakes undercard, but there was some good races, so we'll be back in a few seconds to uh, to talk to Pete about what he thought about uh, Tis the Law and other things. We'll be back in one minute.
Pete, are you there? I'm here. Great. On today, um, I gave a quick little background uh, on you, basically uh, talking about your your past career as a writer and how you're now uh, in the bloodstock industry. But uh, maybe you want to tell the listeners uh, a little bit more, a little more in depth, and uh, give everyone an idea of what you got going on. Sure. Um, moved to Lexington to originally write for the Thoroughbred Times Magazine and uh, did that for about six years. Kind of found my niche in the auction industry. Um, John Sparkman was the bloodstock editor of Thoroughbred Times when I came up and he taught me a lot of things. Um, got to know bloodstock agents and trainers and buyers and sellers. And when I left Thoroughbred Times, in 2011, I wound up um, not sure what I wanted to do at first. I thought maybe I'd stay in journalism, but I wound up going into business with Carrie Thomas, and we formed THT Bloodstock. One of the first things we did was our uh, Kentucky Derby Patterns of Motion report. And um, through looking at the Derby each year, we found out that uh, a lot of Carrie's ideas were actually really applicable um, about how horses show herd leadership and how their mental and emotional confirmations can affect their physical output as athletes. And we basically built a, a business around that, looking at horses from a slightly different perspective than uh, the business traditionally does. And that's eventually how I got to meet you, Chuck. And we got to work together when we were working for uh, Mr. Mackingvale. Yeah. And uh, um, that, that, that's uh it was funny because I had read some of Carrie's stuff and um, I was interested in, and I thought it was kind of a, a different way of looking at things. And um, the one thing I learned from Alan Jerkins probably that can be applied in life is that if you do everything like everyone else, well, with more money and more uh, funding behind them are generally going to do better than you because you know, you're doing things the same and they've got more resources. So I always kind of wanted to, uh, to look at things from a little different point of view. And, and, uh, that's, that's how Carrie and I, um, met and we talked and, uh, it was so funny that, um, uh, I had a couple ideas about, you know, horses and their, their mental makeup and, and such. And it was, it was so ironic that Carrie had actually already developed systems, that uh, I didn't even know I was doing, but I, I had, you know, kind of planted a few of the seeds to start with. Certainly, I, I didn't have um, nearly the, the educational um, or, or, or analytical background that, that he has that, that he's been able to uh, to turn into this system to, to you know, find horses, negative traits and, and positive traits. And uh, I mean, I think that uh, it, it's a really interesting and to me proven successful formula and uh i wish you guys could get a little bit more traction and people would uh would come to you guys and, and use your services because uh i mean there's been some pretty good horses that you guys have picked out and the, you, you don't get credit for probably the best one but uh you know that that's kind of how this business goes unfortunately yeah and you, and you learn a lot of lessons along the way um 
about making sure you get credit for your work and you change your business model. And, you know, for us, we've been involved in, in several operations and, it, and it's usually we're fitting into an existing operation in a lot of different ways. You know, we've had a couple of chances to go to sales and pick, pick a horse out for someone and really put our stamp on a program. And, and ironically, Mackinville was the big first buyer that actually gave us that chance. And um, the, the, the major fruit of that effort was Ron Happy, which of course you had in your barn for uh, about half a year. Yeah, yeah, we had uh, we had him for their, his first summer as a two-year-old, and the, the that that got whitewashed uh, in the documentary. We, we didn't get any uh, <laughs> any credit or any acknowledgement, but you know things happen, and that's the way it goes. I I, I still like to tell the story of uh, when they had instituted their infamous shin program, where they wanted to, all the horses to do the speed work and roll through the lane for a quarter. And the, the, all the text you sent me was, it said, holy shit. <laughs> and I'm like, what happened? <laughs> and yeah. then you told me, uh, you told me what happened when the rider let Run Happy run just a little bit and just left his workmate. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was funny. I, I was instructed to um, let the horses work as fast as they can for a half mile, which they had only been there for about five days, which, of course, I said there's no way in hell that I'm doing that. That's ridiculous, and it's not going to prevent shins. It's going to cause them. So we wound up uh, negotiating, and the horses were there about 10 days, and we, we decided we'd let them do a little bit of a little bit of running, going a quarter mile. And I remember we had five horses for them, and um, the first pair went in 26 and change, and galloped out okay probably 40 the second pair went a little faster uh the candy ride colt was in there wound up being a decent horse uh he went they went 25 and changed for the quarter from the quarter pole that at monmouth park and then run happy came <laughs> and uh he had a, a really experienced rider who had, had a very good clock in his head and wasn't the type of guy that was going to get run off with uh, a guy named finley bishop who's completely insane but he's a He's a tremendous rider, and uh, he knows what he's sitting on. And uh, I remember the clocker, it was a Sunday morning, and there wasn't much track traffic out there. And I was in the clocker stand, which is uh, located at about where the, the three-quarters pole would be on most tracks, on the backside. And uh, he was going down the stretch, and you could tell he was really rolling. He hit the wire, and... Um, the clocker didn't say a word. He galloped out. He went 21 and 3. He galloped out. <laughs> he got him at 32 and 4, though. He said it's a turn, so we're going to give it 33. But uh, he did it completely effortlessly. And that was when I said, Yeah, this is not your ordinary good horse. This horse has, has an immense amount of talent. And he was a big, he was a big horse. I mean, he, he hadn't filled out or. You, you remember that he, he was kind of, he had a big frame on him. He just, you know, wasn't, wasn't a mature horse. And, you know, it's interesting that everybody considers the fact how fast he was. So when they look at his two-year-olds this year, people, I think, are going to be under the misimpression that he was a real precocious horse because he really wasn't. He was just fast because that, that was just pure talent. But he wasn't ready to run in the summer and, and his knees wound up bothering a little bit because he was just so fast and he was growing so fast and we wound up giving him some time 
which, you know, was the argument just to get that done, which probably, you know, in the long run, probably helped his career a lot. But, um, you know, people think because a horse is fast and they're a sprinter that they're ordinarily, you know, going to have, going to throw fast horses. But Run Happy really, he was just starting to develop um, when we lost him. Uh, he, he, he left my barn in mid-October, I believe. I mean, he just had started back training um, and he, he was kind of, he wasn't a real forward precocious type horse that you would think would be running five ace in July, or June or July. So the run happies that are out there, I, I'm not really thinking that they're going to be real precocious right now, but I, I think that in the fall towards the end of the year, you're going to see those horses actually start to, to blossom a little bit, kind of like he did. Yeah, and you just you never know. No matter how good a horse is on the track, there's no guarantee what they're passing on. No. And I I looked at a lot of his yearlings last year, and I saw a lot of quality. Um, the thing I didn't necessarily see was that they were being stamped. I saw a lot of different, really good individuals, and I thought I saw idealized versions of a lot of the mares. So it, it, it gave me a lot of optimism about Run Happy's progeny, but he's still an open book. You know, we just, it, it's going to be really interesting to follow to see what kind of horses he gets. Well, you, you know, the interesting thing about Stallions is that there's no formula that actually works. I mean, there's been horses with great pedigrees, with great confirmation, that great race, race records that just turned out to be poor Stallions. And I mean, if you consider that probably greater than 90 percent, nine out of 10 don't turn into good stallions, it's it's a crapshoot. And, and uh, I mean, honestly, it's a good thing that it's a crapshoot in that the, you know, like we talked about before, the people with the most resources can't just scoop up every good stallion. And, and unfortunately, they buy ones, you know, they put big money up for stallions that don't produce nearly as well as they, they think they're going to either. So. It'll be interesting, but it's still, like you said, it's a long shot. And, you know, they, they play up the, the no medication um, angle a lot. But I, I've told every person I've ever talked to, I said, medication's got absolutely positively nothing to do with the horse's genetic potential. None. And uh, they're either going to be a good stallion and they're going to get the right mix of mares and they're going to have enough success early that they can sustain and, and, and get that, uh, you know, the, the, continue to get the, the good mares. Or, or they're not, and uh, I mean, it's just a, it's a flip of a coin, but uh, I'm, I'm not rooting against them in, many, in any way. I guess the only reason you root against them is that uh, is that every single race, race track and turf course and wouldn't be named after him. It's a little, <laughs> I, I appreciate Max spending his money and keeping him in the business, but it just gets a little tedious <laughs> when it seems every other race is named after run happy it's i mean it's so weird though to think because he was this yearling you know in our program that we had all for considering how young we were in our career we had an almost unnatural amount of confidence in the future of that horse and it it turned out to all be true and more but to to know that like you know at some point he maybe he could have gotten hurt and never no one would have known how good he was and now every race in america is named after him it's it's very surreal for me Listen, if we had kept training him as a as a two year old as fast as he was, because he couldn't slow him down, and he, he who knows he, he might have fractured a knee or chipped it or, or you know 
look at Arazi. How great was he as a two-year-old? He had a knee injury and, you know, had knee surgery. Relatively routine, came back and was really never the same. And, and uh, you just never know. I mean, it's, it's such a crapshoot. But the thing well, you deserve a lot of credit. You deserve a lot of credit because you didn't get the honor of, of saddling Run Happy in a race. But you gave him his early lessons and you kept him sound and you laid the groundwork for what he did later on. So oh. you, you, really, you deserved a lot more credit than you got. Well, I got zero, so. <laughs> but, but no, honestly, the, the, the one thing I, I really believe I made a difference with that horse was that I wouldn't let a certain person, not Mac, ruin the horse. Um, because some of the insanity that was wanted to be put a place upon him at a really young age, just, you know, I, I put my foot down and I said no. And, you know, we talked to Mac and Mac, we were at the July sale, and, and he was very much uh, accepting of, of what I was telling him, that, hey, this horse has immense talent. He's, he's, you know, he's got a big frame. He's growing. He's a little too fast for his own good right now. And we x-rayed his knees, and they, you know, lit up like, hey, you know, there's no fractures yet, but if you keep on keeping on, he's going to have them. And, you know, some trainers, especially the bigger trainers, they're not going to fight for that anymore. No, and the truth of the matter is that a lot of the the big trainers, the people listen to them more readily than to listen to a, a smaller trainer, which is beyond me. But, um, you know, giving him that time off to grow um, and, and to kind of develop a little bit and, and give those, those joints a little bit of a rest while he was growing, I really think that meant a lot to, to him because, uh, you know, he, he was, as it turns out, he you know, he was a, a pretty sound horse once he got going, but, um, you know, we'll see that, like you said, the jury's still out and, uh, who knows? And I, and I'll believe, you know, like I told you a lot of times, I thought the horse could go at least a mile and a 16th, at least. Um, once he was gone out of my hands, the training kind of got a little bit, uh, different. So I don't know that, the way he was being trained would allow him to stretch out as readily as, as he would, if you would probably done things a little differently. But um, I, I do believe, I don't believe that that horse was simply a six for long horse. I really believe that in my heart that he could have been a, a really good miler or, or even uh, a mile and a 16th at a track like Gulfstream or Monmouth uh, or even Churchill, the short run to the turn, you know, you raid him around that first turn, and then just let him go from there. He'd have been, he'd have been real, he'd have, it'd have, it'd have been really interesting to see. But we'll never find out, I guess. Uh, you mentioned medication earlier. Um, I want to revisit a horse with you that I called you last year when we were doing our Derby report. We were finalizing a report, and I was, I was writing uh, up maximum security. And I remember just something was bugging me and because I felt and I actually put this in our final report of him and that I didn't think we truly knew who the horse was. And I knew that you had been stabled very nearby maximum security last winter in Florida. And I called you and I wanted to talk about maximum security with you. And it's it's so interesting now, you know, because we we doubted him in some ways, but I also saw some really good qualities. And I thought he just he ran amazing Derby Day. I remember on the walkover before the Derby, I followed him and I actually expected maximum security to show some cracks in the facade, 
uh, maybe to get hot. And, and um, I knew on the walkover that day that that I had at least a little bit underestimated maximum security. And now, know, you know, knowing what we know about the, the medication issues with Jason Service, I still believe that's a really good horse that has some really good attributes. But I, I don't know if we're ever going to know how good he was or how do you separate how good a horse is in this era from a vitamin or, or, or medicinal uh, regime that they're under? I don't know if we'll ever really know. Oh, honestly, you could say that. About a lot of horses. I agree. Trainers didn't wind up getting indicted by the feds. Right. Um, we, we, we'll probably never know. There's there's horses. I mean, I know people, old timers, who swear. And you got to remember who was treating this horse. The most influential stallion of the last 50, 60, 70 years is Northern Dancer. And... I know some of the guys who swear the Northern Dancer was the first horse, the first real good horse to use Lasix. Hmm. He was a bleeder. Dr. Harthill was his vet. Dr. Okay. Harthill was also the, 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 the vet for Sunday Silence. Um, you know, D- Dr. Harthill and Charlie Whittingham were, were, were you know, best friends from, from the 40s. And Dr. Harthill... You know, he's also the, the person responsible for Dancer's Image getting a positive test, the only positive test that they've ever had in, in the Derby with Dancer's Image in that, back in 1967. So, you know, you, you look at and you think about that, right? Dr. Harthill was not allowed to treat Sunday Silence at New, in New York. Dr. Harthill was barred from New York at the time of the Triple Crown. And, of course, this is, you know, now 30 years later, we live in a little bit of a different world. But, um, you know, he didn't get to treat Sunday Silence prior to the Belmont. And, and perhaps it would have made no difference. And we don't know. Easy Gore was a, a true mile and a half horse. He really liked that surface. Um, and, and it was a little wet that day, but it wasn't wet enough. You know, it dried out. So, you know, who knows? Because of the two, st- of the two stallions in Easy Gore died. You know, very young, so so he never really had a chance to to be proven or unproven. But I mean, there's two of the greatest stallions in the, in our in our lifetime, and both who are associated with a with a veterinarian with a, a very checkered checkered past. So I don't really know because in the end, I think the genetic disposition and the genetic makeup is what matters, and you can't change that. That that's something that that happens and. I, and I don't want to get too technical or go into things that most people are like, all right, Chuck, you're boring us. But Sunday Silence going to Japan might have made him a, uh, turned, turned out to be a really the thing that made him a great stallion in that he nicked so well with northern taste mares. And there was so much northern taste blood in Japan at the time because they hadn't yet really expanded out internationally that far they were just doing that and he nicked so well he had some incredible record with northern taste or northern taste um who northern taste who was prior to him was the leading you know japanese sire so he had this incredible record with these mares and of course you know he kept proving it and he he kept he he had a pretty good record with, with a lot of different type of mares but you know there's just so many factors that go into it maybe had he gone to the u.s 
and he hadn't had a lot of precocious early runners that he would have been shipped out somewhere. You, you just, you never know, you know, you just never really know. And, and how crazy is it that Northern Dancer, a, a horse, I mean, he's, we talk about Tis the Law being small. I think Northern Dancer was quite a bit smaller than Tis the Law and the, to see the stallion lines that he wound up founding um, here and especially in Europe, that it's just another testament that, that you just never know what's inside of them and what they're going to pass on. No, it's it's uh, it's it's a very inexact science. <laughs> Anyways, to thinking about tis the law, what uh, what were your impressions of the Belmont? I thought, um, well, first the, the the mile and an eighth were, of course, this whole year is an asterisk. Every everything's different, but I've always thought that one turn mile and an eighth at Belmont is largely a speed types race. And I figured that the horses in the race that had speed probably had a ch- were going to have a big advantage. And Tis the Law specifically, he has he has these really nice cruising gears, and then he's push button with with additional gears, and that's a tough running style to beat. And I thought that was probably one of his smoothest expressions of his speed. Manny Franco gave him a really good ride this time. And I thought he was, you know, regardless of, of what distance it was or who showed up for the race, I thought that was a legitimate um, triple crown race winning performance. And I think, I think Tis the Law has a lot of quality and he's an easy horse to root for too. It's funny because in the opening before you came on, I, I, that was one of my, um, one of my statements was that I, I believe that the race was a classic style race in that. The, the, the quality of his performance against, uh, you know, pretty good competition and, and the way he dispatched them pretty easily and, and won, you know, won nicely in a, in a fast time. And I know the track is, you know, was souped up again. I, I don't get it, but uh, it seems oh, yeah. to happen. It seems to happen an awful lot um, because one breaking 147 at Belmont Park going a mile and eighth is, is something that only really top class horses do. And I'm not saying that the law is not a top class horse, but he is. Uh, it's just that you don't see that happen. Um, and when you look at the, the track, um, the, the times of some of the other races, the maiden race, um, Todd Pletcher's ran that, that you know, unleashed that maiden who only ran, two fifths of a second slower than uh, the Woody Stevens ran. Uh, and then, you know, the, the Baffert Philly that just scorched the track. I mean, 132 and change for a mile is just, uh, is insane. And these are really good horses, all of them, but the track was really tight and really fast. Yeah, I agree that. And, and I mean, and that's why we have speed figures to measure the track speed on the day. I do think Tis the Law is a really unique horse, though. Um, you don't often see – I mean, there's a bias against small horses for a reason. You don't often see one that can do what he did. But I think it's a testament uh, to balance when, when, you know, when people are talking about what to look for in a physical confirmation and, and mental confirmation. I don't think balance can be overstated in no. terms of how, how important it is for a racehorse and their mechanics and their ability to stretch speed over distance. As a trainer that unfortunately wound up training lots of horses that didn't have great balance. I can tell you one thing, if they don't have it, they're not going to be any good. Um, you know, the funny thing about that horse is 
if you see him out of his stall, he doesn't look that big. But when when, when he's tacked up with a rider on him, he actually seems like he, he's a little bit bigger than uh, than when you see him with, without without um, without the tack on. But uh, I, I did see Barkley a couple of weeks ago before he left down here, and and he uh, I, I told him you know I wished him well and was rooting for him and said you know the horse never had a bad day in Florida. So I mean he's trained really well here. Um, you watch him go; he he goes good all the time. He's always eager to train. He uh, he he never really you know he finishes up in his works, and um, I mean he seems like he's he's a, a really sound horse. And I don't know. I mean right now, obviously the uh, the Derby is this is kind of bizarre talking about it, but the Derby's still quite a ways away. Um, I mean, but right now, I don't know with some of the defections, who really is, is going to be able to challenge him. I mean, right, right now, it doesn't even, I know, we'll, I'm sure we'll have a full gate for the Derby, but exactly who, who are the 19 other horses lining up against him right now? It could be horses that have just won a maiden race right now. I mean, theoretically, we could have horses that are still maidens right now. Yeah. Break their maiden jump up in, in in one of these uh okay we had some technical difficulties because i don't have casey today on mondays and i'm my producer and i'm not very good at producing so we have pete back on the line and um pete you had a couple you had a couple questions i did so when, whenever we were working sales together, you uh, you trained us not to show you a horse with four white legs. Although we did almost buy one once, and it actually won some races. But I wanted to get your take on a white eye. I noticed tis the law. You can you can definitely see some white in that eye, and it can kind of be interpreted, you know, in two different ways. What what do you think of horses where you see a bunch of white in the eye? Well, it was always told to me that horses with white legs um were just their legs weren't quite as structurally sound and it, i know that people say that's all bunk but it just seems like horses that um that have four white legs feet especially um the pigmentation for whatever reason they're not quite as sturdy but i i know scientifically i they it's said that that's not true but it's uh you know, part of it might be the Stormcat influence and in that Stormcat was a, a major sire that had a lot of chrome, a lot of white on him, and, and his uh, he's kind of passed that on. But um, the white in the eye, you know, people have often said that uh, it was thought for a while that, that their vision might not quite be as good as a horse without it. And one of the things that we've found has really um, caused horses to act uh, a little erratic sometimes is their vision just isn't that good and they're just not seeing things as well as they should and things kind of catch up or jump out at them and um you know people would shied away from white-eyed horses because they thought they were um uh, high strung or erratic or a little bit uh more apt to, to have trouble with their um their attitudes but I don't know. I mean, I've had a couple horses with whites in their eyes, and they they weren't any 
any worse or any better than than any other horse. Uh, I'm, I'd still rather not buy horses with white feet, but the white and eye doesn't scare me nearly as much as as uh, as a lot of other people. I I and I don't know if there's any science to it, but I associate the white eye with a bit of ed- edginess in a horse, and it can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. True, right, and that that's the funny thing about any trait in a horse, and that you know a horse that's really laid back and lazy, they don't usually turn out to be good horses, and a horse that's so high strung that you can't keep them in a straight line, they usually wind up getting hurt. So, you know, you want to find one that's got a, a decent amount of aggression, but is manageable and, and and is trainable where it's going to listen to the riders because what your goal as a trainer is to get your horse to respond to the cues of the rider uh and sometimes you're going to have horses that are just not going to do it they're just going to cut and run and they're going to go as fast as they can as long as they can and the rider has to just try to deal with it and try to slow them down as much as you can try to you know reserve as much in the tank as you as as you can for the stretch and other horses, especially horses that that might be a little weak in the the hind end, don't have the the big push. Um, those horses, they um, you know, they, they tend to to break a little slower and and, and wind up having um, they, they get stuck in it. They don't get to position themselves as well because the they're not breaking as sharp. And um, sometimes you know, people think they're lazy and it's just not, it's not even that. It's just that they mechanically aren't as, as affluent as, as other horses are. And they, um, you know, they take a little bit while, a a little while longer to get going. Yeah. I think sometimes we, you know, people mistake horses that want more distance for horses that are just slow. Yeah, that's true. I I was so funny. I, I was, I had a horse and he was he was pretty slow, but he never got tired. But he never went real fast. And uh, I was at Parks at the time, and I asked Sal Sinatra, who was the racing secretary, I said, "Sal, will you write a mile and an eighth maiden? It was I think it was a maiden ten or maiden seventy five hundred. Will you write one going a mile and an eighth? He said, "I'll do one better. I'll write one going a mile and a quarter. We can start we can start from the top of the stretch because he's just uh, the mile and an eighth is a little tricky for us." So we'll we'll start it at the top of the stretch, and uh, you know I'll put it up as an extra. We'll see if it fills. So he puts it on the extras. It gets ten, and this is when Parks, you know, a six was a, considered a big field at the time. So it gets ten, and don't you know my horse runs second. <laughs> so <laughs> I go back and I said, Sal, you know you had ten. It was a good race. Blah blah blah. Um, do you think you could write that race back? And he said, sure, it filled, it filled nice, you know, I mean, why not? I'll put it back up in a couple of weeks and we'll see what happens, you know. Maybe with a fluke it filled that big, but maybe it's not. So we go back in the race and it's a two-horse race. And, and if the, the race fills, it's got a, I, I think there was also eligibles in the race, to be honest with you. I think there was like 12 and they would only run 10 uh, around two turns at parks at that point. So there's a horse of West Points that uh, Lupe Preciado trained, and, and my horse, and we were like the the Jaipan and Ride Dan of uh, the Jaipur and Ride Dan of, of of the Maiden Tens at Parks. These two horses went head and head, literally the entire race, and 
they were coming down the stretch, and I mean, you could have timed this race with a sundial. They were just staggering. But um, it came down to a head bob, and, and we got our head down. <laughs> and I think the mile and a quarter time was like 209 or <laughs> something like that. It was was some ridiculously slow time. But but uh, I, I was so happy because, you know, I thought to myself, there's probably no other race this horse can win. He just has he just has enough stamina, but he just doesn't, you know, he can go uh, 14 second eighths for three times around. He just can't do 12 second eighths, you know, from f at all. He just didn't have it. And, uh, and I came back and I, I said to him a couple weeks later, Hey, could you ride a race? Uh, 7,500 never went two going a mile and a quarter. And he says, no, no, I draw the line at main, <laughs> at the main 7,500. But, you're right, though. A lot of horses, they're just slow. But I think that racing secretaries should take advantage of that. And I think you could get guys to run uh, cheap horses. And, and I'm not saying that running a bunch of cheap horses going a mile and a quarter is going to be aesthetically pleasing or, or, or you know, become the next uh, panacea for, for horse racing. But, you know, so many slow horses out there, you'd think guys would say, you know what, let's, let's try them going really long because what what's the you know what's the harm I mean the horse isn't fast but maybe he's got a little bit of stamina and um you know it's it's just seems like all we get now are a steady dose of uh sprints and the only distance races we get around two turns are on the grass for the most part even tracks like Gulfstream and Laurel and uh, and Belmont I mean they they you know you can't really run two turn races at Belmont on the dirt but um you know, there's so many of these one-turn races that uh, that are that are kind of elongated sprints. They're ridden like that because that's just the way the races shape up. And and you know, you're a jockey, you break out of the gate, and you got uh, uh, a half mile to run before you hit a turn. Well, the horses naturally are going to go fast, and uh, it, it's just uh, it's funny. You go on the the boards and. The internet and Twitter and everybody's, you know, clamoring for these distance races, but we can't get the we can't get them to fill, and a lot of trainers don't seem to think that they can train horses to go long, and the 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 dirty little secret is you really don't train them that much different. You, you're not, you know, like there's not that many bold Forbeses that you can, uh, you know, train like Laz Barrera trained, you know, in this perfectional you know absolutely perfect way and where they were able to steal the Belmont stakes and you know Cordero gave him an unbelievable ride you don't have to train you don't have to beat Laz Brera to train a horse to go two turns if they have the the, the natural disposition to do it they're gonna do it, it it's not you know I, I'm not sure why uh and I'm not talking the top trainers I'm talking the the guys who who have a lot of the cheaper horses and you know the odd thing is that the longer races are really easier on the horses. They're 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 just galloping along and and then they just you know kind of run at the end and uh, it's 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 something that I think our cards miss a lot of in, in the variety, uh, especially at the the B tracks and and lowers you see sprint 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 sprint, um, and and I don't know that that's a, a well I, I I don't I do know it, it it's not a good thing it's 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 a negative. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think you probably have a better chance of 
getting if, if you're willing to think outside the box a little bit in the racing secretary's world the races you probably have a better chance of getting a horse making a difference in a horse to get them to go long than you do trying to make them sprint and, and trying to make them express speed and keep up with horses that they simply can't keep up with no matter what you do True. You, could, you could probably give them a more it's a more achievable goal to stretch them out physically and mentally than it is to get them to go faster shorter I'm telling you, one of the best handicapping angles that there is is a horse that's showing speed, um, going short and stopping. When stretched out to two turns, if they able to get to a lonely lead and get loose on the lead, those horses get brave. And a lot of times you would, you would see them uh, be able to get uh, the two turns because... They went 24-48 instead of 22-46, and they weren't pressured. They were able to settle on the lead and, and relax, and which is what they wanted to do. They didn't want to be pushed. They want Some horses want to run through the bridle, meaning you know, you see the rider is, is, looks kind of like they're pulling back on the horse, and you know, the horse is, is they call it running through the bridle, where other times... Um, you know, you'll see a horse with the lines loose. Like if you ever watched Paco Lopez ride, virtually every horse he 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 rides, he just loose reins him. He just kind of lets him run and just kind of props himself up there. It's why he does well, but it's also why he gets days every once a month. But uh, it it's uh it's I would like to see more two turn races. I really would. I, I think that it's uh, something that would would be beneficial to to the sport as a whole and, and to the the gambling cards i think you're, you're going to get better cards when you have a lot a little more variety and uh and i think the horses would benefit from i mean not every single horse is bred to sprint and unfortunately that's that's we a lot of tracks we we get a lot to, a lot more one turn races than, than two turns and, and we always we're, we're really big proponents of turn backs you know vice versa is you know sending a horse long on the lead stretching out their time and motion profile and then you bring them back to the sprint and now you've got a horse that's going to run through the wire we're really big advocates of doing that via a race or training so we always tell people hey try your horse long even if it doesn't work you get the cut back on the next race and it's going to run the race of its life probably yeah well they're they're going to be fit that's for sure because they're cutting back in distance and um yeah there, there's some trainers that are that are really really good at, at doing that um I was better at stretching. My my thing was I, I would try to find horses that I thought would be better going two turns. And and again, people, when you go to the sales and you have a limited budget and you, you see precocious, fast horses, especially at the two-year-old sales, you know, you, you got to be real creative because you're not going to be able to afford those ones. So you, you got to look for a horse that maybe is a little bit later developer or a horse that, that's going to not excel going an eighth of a mile, but, a, you know, in, in a workout, but a horse who's going to be um, better at uh, a steady gallop at a, at, a, at a slower pace. And, you know, once the horses, uh, or once the races get to two turns, uh, they're going to excel. Um, the problem is that they just, you know, we we just simply don't have enough two-turn races anymore. You said something that, that 
struck a chord with me because we've gone to auctions with a lot of ammunition and then and more recently we've gone to auctions where we're trying to buy you know the 20 or thirty thousand dollar horse and the way you you look at them really changes based on your budget knowing how much money is at the auction with you and, and how many of the horses are gonna sell so big that you couldn't really justify the purchase price to someone for whom uh bottom line financials matter at all yeah, it, it's true. You know, one of the hardest things that I found when, when I was buying for, for clients was, especially at the, the sales, that, that, uh, the Keeneland September sale, the big long sales, is that, you know, you might find a horse who you like a lot better on the second or third day than the, the first day, but do you pass the horses that come up before him if they're bought in the right price because I, I've passed on horses to bid on other horses because I thought that they would be in my price range and then wound up like never getting a bid on the, on the second horse because they went way beyond what I thought they would bring and I I would like you know my strategy was always I, I never had the real money so my strategy was I didn't look at AP and these are storm cats or any horses that I couldn't afford like tappets it wasn't any, there was no point in looking at those. There was no point looking at half-sisters to grade one winners. There was no point at looking at horses that if I could afford them, we probably wouldn't want them. So, but even so, horses with lesser pedigrees, um, they don't always fall into your hands. Sometimes, uh, you know, other guys, other sharp guys are over there and they've seen the same horse and they can see the attributes that you see and they got a little more money than you got, so they're they're willing to to spend them more money than you, and it, it comes down to that. Unfortunately, in a lot of cases, is in that uh, you know it's it's uh, I guess it's not that much different than uh, an NFL team that that's got uh, you know the number sixteen pick and the number twenty four pick. You know, you might like a guy better, um, one guy better than the other, but. The other guy might, you know, the guy you like better actually might still be around at 24, but so do you pass him at 16 and try to get both guys? Or, you know, do you take the guy you like better even though you're you're kind of uh, uh, jumping the gun? And and it's it, that's the one thing that I always thought was, was the toughest at auctions was that, uh, you know, you can find plenty of good horses. And you can find plenty of good horses in your budget. It's just being lucky enough sometimes to get the ones that you like to fall to into your lap at the time that you you uh you decide you're going to bid and and you know it's not an exact science and sometimes passing on horses um comes back to haunt you later on especially if you don't get the second one bought I it was one sale in particular where I had a pretty good amount of money to buy horses for a client and um we kept getting outbid and, and and it just got to be a frustrating point and uh you know where, where you're like am i undervaluing everything or is the sale strong or or am i just falling on horses that are are really good and and uh you know they're, they're not falling through the cracks and um like i i had a horse fall through the cracks at uh at one day at uh, a horse named genuine devotion i bought her at um Keeneland, day one, book one, which is, you know, the best of the best, pedigrees, uh, race records, physicals, these are, you know, the, the, literally the top rated 
uh, yearlings for auction in the United States, and I wound up buying her for, she was by Rock of Gibraltar, it was first crop of Rock of Gibraltar, and I bought her for 90000 and the average for the day was 300000 Um, but she just didn't have the pedigree, and she was a little on the small side, and, you know, the, the agents that play in that league, they weren't interested in a horse like her. They couldn't justify spending three, four hundred thousand on her, so they passed. They they moved on, and and I wound up uh, outbidding someone from the British Bloodstock Agency for, um, and she wound up being a graded winner and and uh, made a couple three hundred thousand, and and wound up the owner wound up selling her at auction for a million dollars because her brother, who was. Uh, who followed her wound up being a horse named uh, Master Craftsman, who was European Horse of the Year. So sometimes you just get lucky. And and had I just not, you know, had I got outbid for that horse, or I had stopped because the truth of the matter was ninety five to a hundred was kind of where I thought the horse would go. And I don't know that I would have gone higher than that. And you know, as it turns out, it, it turned out to be very fortunate for the the owner, who uh, who wound up taking the horse from me. Anyways, but uh, uh, they did very well with that one, and that just it just goes to show you, you know, it, you just have to sometimes you're in the right place at the right time, and and all the the chips fall fall properly, and 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 you get lucky. So I think the frustrating part is is all you can do is do the work, and you can try to anticipate value, um, but you're 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 kind of at the mercy of the market and it's an illogical market and there's a lot of times when there's just too much money in it i remember i recall a story two years ago we're at the maryland yearling sale and we find a colt by a stallion named redeemed if you you maybe remember this horse he was actually a long distance horse he's a regional stallion so we find this horse we love by redeemed and you know you tell the client well i think this horse is going to bring x and you think you're going to get that? You think there's no way you're going to get out outbid for this totally uncommercial pedigree? Sale day rolls around. We're in the outside paddock. We're watching this horse walk through the ring, and Jorge Navarro walks up, and we watch. We literally watch the horse catch his eye, and we see him turn his page, and we see him looking at the horse, and we're like, "Oh boy, is he actually on this horse?" We go in the ring. We start bidding. Jorge Navarro is bidding against us. And another um, major Maryland area owner, Joseph Biesecker, is bidding against us. And I'm, I'm in the back bidding with the client. Carrie's out front trying to see who's bidding against us. And he watches as Jorge Navarro and Biesecker literally form an alliance. And they say, you want a couple legs? I'll take a couple legs. And they start bidding against us as a team. And they outbid us for, for a Colt by Redeemed. Um, I don't remember what it was. It was probably like 50000 or sixty thousand dollars and you just you just never know who, who's going to show up against you yeah that that's so true uh you know that horse is not working and he's in my stable mail if he's any good i get to repeat this story his name is redeem eddie and he is working so i don't know what's going on with him i don't have any information but he was a nice year so we'll put that one in the uh, the old stable mail redeem eddie i got another one although I'm, it's not a stable mailer yet um, you know how, like, as a, as Italian talent evaluator, you kind of learn for things you look for, and every once in a while you see something that's like a glimmer of gold in your eye, like this is real. Yeah. So last 
last fall, we helped a client buy a filly by Mosler at the Maryland yearling sale. Another another big household sire name. (laughs) Exactly. And I sent you a workout video. Did you get to see it? Yes, I did. The horse actually worked very well. So I have, I have two workout videos of her going three furlongs out of the gate, one of her on the inside, one of the outside. The times were fast, and she just dominates from either position. And I guess it's it's the old saying, uh, no trainer ever quit, or the saying might be committed suicide. That's kind of dark. With a good two-year-old in the barn? Well, I, I'm kind of walking on clouds the last couple of days after seeing this workout from this Mosler filly. I'm, I'm hoping that we maybe found one of those special diamonds in the rough where the market didn't see it, and we did. She's shipping to the track soon and, and, and hopefully going to progress and, and have a, a career. Well, ho- hopefully, you know, every sire has, seems like they get one good horse, at least one good horse. Old Bob Bowers had John Henry. So maybe this will be Mosler's uh Mosler's Mosler's claim to fame. Anyways, uh Pete, I appreciate spending your time giving me a little bit uh of your afternoon and uh we'd love to have you back. Uh probably have you give us a call around uh sales time, uh, yearling sales when things get going. I know you guys are Probably getting into your busy season. Hopefully things pick up and uh, people. Uh, I mean, it's a great time to buy a horse because there's there's a big supply and and uh, it's kind of an oversupply right now. So if you can find something that maybe uh, maybe is by a sire like Mosler or or has the the proper uh, Carrie gives a seal of approval has the the proper mental makeup. You can you can find a, a diamond in the rough out there. I think you are a natural for the podcast, Chuck, and I'd love to come on anytime. Thank you. All right. The check's in the mail, my man. Thank you. (laughs) See you later. That was Pete. Thank everyone. Um, We thank Pete. Uh, He's a good guy. He's a a sharp guy and uh, he's in a tough business, but uh, he's him and Carrie are persevering. Good guys. I, I wish they could get a little bit more, more traction. People should give them a, a shot. Anyways, thank you for listening today. We went a little longer than we thought we would, but uh, the segments were were good. And um, tomorrow on Tuesday, we're going to do our live show from the studio. So we shouldn't have nearly as many production issues as we had today because I'm just not very good technically. Casey is excellent technically. So Tomorrow's show, uh, we're going to try to do a live show from 3.30 to 5. Uh, we'll have a couple a couple guests on. We'll, uh, we'll talk about some, some interesting things. I, I think I have a, a special guest. I, I'm not going to, until I have him tied down, it'll talk about a topic that, that people are interested in. And you're going to be able to get a little bit of a different uh, point of view not going to be, um, you're not going to get cliches. This is a guy that, that, uh, he's kind of a straight shooter. So hopefully, uh, we'll get him pinned down and, and get that show on tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon. Appreciate everyone listening. Thank you. Have a great day.